0: Welcome to the American History Podcast, Episode 8, Bonus Episode. Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Worswick. All right, hello, and welcome to the American History Podcast. This is Episode 8, bonus episode, The Vietnam War. Now, first, let me apologize for having been gone for about two months. If you were a regular listener at this time, it is 2017, um, you know I've not released an episode since early October. There are two major reasons for my absence. First, if you've been listening, I'm a teacher, and I changed schools. Indeed, I moved to an entirely... Um, different school district. Now, this change was a long time in coming. Um, I'd been unhappy with uh, how things were going at the previous school for at least a year. And while a year isn't all that long, the amount of change and things that were going on, it was just too much. So I felt like it was time to get out. And lucky for me, I've got friends in other districts all over the city. And a couple of them really helped me out. Now, the second reason that I've been gone for two months, uh, if you know me well, you know that my oldest dog, Chuck, passed away in early november after a short 10-day illness he was 13 and a half and he was the light of our lives um i planned on recording an episode on october 31st and releasing it the next day but that was when chuck was ill and so i was unable to do so he then passed away on november 7th and i was a mess so recording was just not on one of the things that i was even considering doing at that point um but hopefully we can get back on track and on with the show. Now one last thing before we get started. Um, we're going to start doing the show in seasons, and each season is going to have a theme or a topic. So if you would do me a favor, you could go to the com, and on the front page there, there's a poll. Please vote in what you would like us to cover, uh, or what vote for the topic you'd like us to cover um, in season two. There's four choices, the American Revolution, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and the war with Mexico. So go on over there real quick, it won't take you very long, and please let me know what you'd like me to cover in Season 2. All right, on with the show. Now by the 1990s, when I began studying history as an undergraduate, um, interest in the Vietnam War um, was kind of on the wane, Professional historians, for the most part, had either moved on to other areas of interest. Um, They began to focus on social history, gender history, um, or they consciously decided to focus, you know, on things like the American Civil War and World War II if they had a desire to write about war. Now, just as an aside, you know, if you write a book on World War II or the Civil War, it's going to sell a lot of copies. It's almost guaranteed, right? I mean, Americans just, they buy these books up like hotcakes. However, this kind of started to change um, in the latter part of the decade as new works reassessing the Cold War and the conflicts associated with it, such as the Vietnam War, began to appear. Even historian like John Lewis Gaddis, he's a historian who prior to the downfall of the Soviet Union was seen as a post-revisionist historian on the Cold War. He reassessed the Cold War and he actually moved into um, the Orthodox camp which basically said that the Cold War was Stalin and Russia's fault. And so reassessment of the Vietnam War began as early as 1980 and the election of Ronald Reagan. Although here the orthodox view was, simply put, the Vietnam War was a tragic mistake. The revisionists, when it came to the Vietnam War, were those who argued the United States was the good guy and fought the good fight. Now, this school of thought was spearheaded by three former U.S. Army officers who were veterans of the war, and the revisionist historians, they tend to criticize American policy and leadership for failing to develop a plan to fully and realistically implement tactics which could achieve victory. A major weakness of this school of thought was, among other things, it doesn't account for the fact that the Vietnamese were simply willing to lose more men than the United States. Further, Um, the revisionists focused on the ruthlessness of the communists in their fight against the United States downplaying the fact that if the situation was reversed, Americans we would fight just as ruthlessly to protect our land and our country With this in mind I want to answer two essential questions today Why was the United States involved in Vietnam and what were the major mistakes which caused the United States to travel down the road to failure In answering these questions I think it's safe to say that the Vietnam War came about as a result of ideological competition with what American leaders saw at the time as the communist bloc, combined with our own leaders' uh, sensitivity to the vulnerability of their own domestic political position and economic institutions. The perceived susceptibility of the American way of life to the communist threat meant the United States would embark upon a policy of containment, in Southeast Asia, without attempting to tailor the overall plan to the realities on the ground. While attempts to assist the South Vietnamese establish a stable and functioning government might have been, at the start, done in a spirit of friendship and helpfulness on the part of some American officials, from the beginning, members of the Eisenhower and later Kennedy administrations questioned the ability, the motives, and plans of their Vietnamese allies, especially President Codin and his associates. By the early 1960s, American advice turned to outright administrative colonialism and imperialism as defined by a historian named William Appleman Williams. And as an aside, if you've never read any of uh, William Appleman Williams, I would suggest you do. He's fantastic. Further, the decision by President Kennedy to listen to the advice of advisors such as Avril Harriman and John Kenneth Galbraith both of whom were not on the ground in Vietnam, over that um, offered by those who were, represented a grave mistake, especially when the president went forward with the decision to sign an agreement making Laos neutral territory. Finally, Kennedy's tacit support of the coup against XM in early November 1963 represents the gravest mistake of the entire period and makes it virtually impossible for the United States to avoid a massive buildup of troops, thus involving the United States in what journalist David Halberstam called a quagmire. Historian Mark Atwood Atwood Lawrence puts it best when he states, Vietnam was nothing more than an abstraction of American policymakers, quote, a repository of the anxieties and dilemmas that bedeviled U.S. officials around the world, rather than a country to be understood on its own terms. Okay, so to fully understand the war in Vietnam, One must first attempt to answer the question, why Vietnam? Why did this small country on the edge of the Asian mainland draw the attention of the United States and cause it, at one point, to commit over half a million troops to fight a war propping up an unpopular government in the southern half of the nation? What was so important that over 50,000 Americans and countless Vietnamese civilians lose their lives for? There are several historical explanations as to why the United States got involved in Vietnam. During the 70s, the first school of thought blamed containment. As the Cold War intensified in the late 1940s, thanks to especially to the communist victory in China, Truman and his advisors came to see the Cold War as a global challenge. The complexities of what motivated the Vietnamese independence movement, be it nationalism, anti-colonialism, international Marxism, or some combination thereof, became less important as the administration viewed Vietnam more and more through the lens of Cold War thinking. A second school, also prevalent in the 1970s, believed it was, much, it was more about American fears of communist advances in France rather than Asia. These historians argued American policymakers concerned with France's ability to recover from World War II and its susceptibility to communist revolution, thanks to the strength of the French Communist Party, believed that by allowing France to recover its colony in Indochina, they would then head off a political crisis, which would play into the hands of the communists. By the 1980s, a third explanation developed, which blamed not international politics, but domestic concerns. These historians argued Truman and his advisors decided to back the French in order to insulate themselves from their domestic critics, especially the Republicans on the right, who accused Truman and Secretary of State Dean Acheson of allowing China to fall to communism. Now, there's a fourth school of thought that argues American policy decisions were based upon economic calculations. According to this line of thinking, Vietnam's importance was not based on its direct contribution to the American economy, but in what it could contribute towards other industrialized states, such as Japan or Britain, countries which depended upon access to the natural resources of Southeast Asia and the Malaysian Peninsula in particular. Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Malaysia were all threatened by communist insurgencies in the late 1940s, and a loss of one of these states, such as, for example, Malaysia, could threaten the rest, as well as India and maybe even Australia. (laughs) Now, a final argument postulates... That U.S. behavior can be explained by placing even more importance on the role played by France and Britain in pressuring the United States into becoming involved in Indochina. Best represented by Mark Atwood Lawrence in Assuming the Burden, this work or this school develops the idea that French and British policymakers worked closely with American counterparts who shared their worldview to produce a desirable outcome in which the United States would assume the burden of preventing the communists from taking control of Indochina. Now, whichever side one comes down upon amongst the various calculations that led us, and the United States, I should say, to the decision to commit itself to Vietnam in 1950, as Mark as Mark Lawrence notes, there can be no question this was one of the most important decisions of the entire decades-long U.S. involvement in Indochina. You can see in the literature on the Cold War, especially um, since the fall of the Soviet Bloc in 1991, more often than not, American leaders in the United States viewed matters of foreign policy through the lens of the Cold War. Because government officials in the United States were worried about the influence of the Soviet Union and the possibility of nations joining their side of the struggle, decisions would be made which would inexorably lead the United States into Vietnam. Now, the reality is, in the mid to late 1940s, the United States had no clear policy with regards to Vietnam specifically, or Indochina in general. Policy at that time was being made on the fly. While the French were worried uh, American anti-colonialist ideology masked their true intentions, which the French thought um, were economic and military in nature, no such plan actually existed. American open-door beliefs would, according to the French, favor powerful Americans over Europeans and allow the U.S. military to extend, extend its power globally. Of course, this ignores the fact that in the aftermath of World War II, the United States drew down its military significantly going from 8 million to approximately half a million troops by 1948. Furthermore, at least a few French officials detected cracks in the American facade of anti-colonial discourse. Washington's policy appeared both vague and contradictory, something which would haunt the United States when it came to Vietnam, as the policy under future leaders often was contradictory as well. Thus, in late 1944... As it became more obvious that World War II would end in an allied victory, the French held a series of bilateral meetings in which they pursued a number of policies to convince and coerce the Americans into backing their goals in Indochina. These included appealing to American sensibilities by emphasizing the good intentions of the French towards the population in Indochina, stressing accomplishments of advancing economic development, and thus improving the lives of the 24 million inhabitants of the region, And finally, appealing to what they assumed was American ambition to penetrate the region militarily by hinting at access to bases in the area. Thus, France was supported in its quest to restore its international standing and power through the reacquisition of colonial possessions in Indochina by the British. Now, the British, of course, had a reason to support the French. They, too, were worried about their colonies. Um, the aforementioned historian Mark Atwood Lawrence identifies three reasons that the British were supportive. First, they were worried that if the Americans um, successfully questioned French presence in Indochina, they might start questioning British imperialism in other parts of Southeast Asia as well, such as Hong Kong. Second, the British were under the impression that the French had a better chance of restoring peace and stability to the region. Third, there was a consensus in London that a robust and strong France was needed as a partner in European affairs. Because of this, both European powers, France and Britain, would work together to convince the United States to support them, despite its distaste for European imperialism and colonialism. By 1944, some British diplomats and policymakers believed that burgeoning American anxiety with regard to Soviet expansion would be key to getting Washington to commit itself to the region and eventually accept a partnership with both France and Britain. In the end, the United States, a nation born of revolution against colonialism and imperialism, would betray those ideals and commit itself to, at best, assisting with the reestablishment of colonial government in Indochina. At worst, you could say the United States would find itself eventually footing the bill, for a war to uphold one of the colonial powers before itself succumbing to what amounts to administrative colonialism. While some historians, such as the aforementioned Williams, convincingly argued the United States was acting as an empire through the early years of the 20th century, this this includes the 40s and 50s, it was a different empire than those which had gone before. Indeed, it was a reluctant imperial power at best. Historian Richard H. Emmerman notes in his book Empire for Liberty that John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State under President Eisenhower began advocating as early as the mid-1940s for an empire based on security. Dulles went so far as to argue for a geopolitically divided world, one which would be split into two incompatible halves, with the free world led by the United States guarding all enemies against all enemies through the exercise of its spiritual, economic, and military power. Gaddis, the godfather of the Cold War historians, notes that the American empire was different from its contemporary Soviet counterpart in that the spheres of influence the United States established in Europe had a design which fundamentally reflected the influence and pressures exerted upon the United States by the peoples it purported to rule over. This is an important point to remember when attempting to unravel the reasons the United States becomes involved in the quagmire that was Vietnam. Now, the reality is, it would take more than British and French pressure, along with the desire of some influential Americans, to engage in imperialism before the United States would be forced to act. Although imperialism would eventually play a role in American decisions with regards to Indochina, it was not the only motivator behind American decisions at this point, nor was the pressure being exerted by the French and the British diplomats enough to push us over the edge. Three administrations, from Franklin Roosevelt to Harry Truman to Dwight Eisenhower would make policy in Vietnam amidst rapidly changing domestic and international contexts. This was done while making abstract calculations of the situation without taking into account the complexities of Vietnamese society. President Roosevelt saw Vietnam as the embodiment of everything wrong with European colonialism, while at the same time not having an understanding of the complex social changes that were taking place in Vietnam. This is a problem that many policymakers in the United States suffered from, and I think you could say we still suffer from that today. FDR also viewed the Vietnamese people in an extremely negative light. In one meeting, Roosevelt dismissed the Vietnamese as, quote, a people small of stature, like the Javanese and Burmese, who were not warlike, end quote. Of course, Americans would be disabused of this notion by the time their involvement in Vietnam came to an end, by the mid-1970s, much to their regret. However, Franklin Roosevelt was not unique, as Harry Truman also viewed the Vietnamese and Vietnam in a negative way. Truman viewed the situation in terms of its strategic and economic goals that were the top of his administration's foreign policy agenda. In other words, what could Vietnam do to help or hurt the American position vis-à-vis the Cold War? However, Truman's thinking on the situation in Southeast Asia would undergo a transformation during his time in office, thanks to the role it played in what Lawrence refers to as the grand transnational debate on the role of Vietnam and the fate of colonial territories in the post-World War II era. Lawrence effectively argues that in the late 40s and 50s, several reciprocally reinforcing issues propelled the Truman administration into supporting the French and in Indochina. These considerations were geostrategic calculations U.S. economic objectives, and finally the imperatives of domestic politics. However, there is a fourth consideration which previously had been overlooked, and that is the role played by Britain and France in taking the initiative and setting the agenda on the issue of Southeast Asia in general, and Vietnam in in particular. By the early 1950s, all three governments would come together to form a coalition whose goal was to destroy the Vietnamese communist movement once and for all, what caused this unification was the threat of communism. While the Allies did help to push the United States into deciding how to deal with Southeast Asia, again, they were not the only force at work. In 1949, mainland China had fallen to the communist forces led by Chairman Mao. The Soviets had acquired atomic weapons, and in June of 1950, North Korean communist forces invaded South Korea the first time an international boundary had been violated since the Second World War. In the wake of these events, a complete policy reassessment was undertaken by the National Security Council, out of which came NSC 68, probably the most important document of this time period. This report portrayed the Communist movement as a coordinated global crusade, one which had to be challenged by the United States and her allies. Finally adopted in the spring of 1951, This policy marks a major shift away from the distinction between vital and peripheral interests as expressed by the containment policy that was advocated by George Keenan. When combined with the pressure being applied on American leaders by British and French allies to do something in Southeast Asia, there was little chance the United States would avoid involving itself in Indochina in some way. However, under President Dwight D. Eisenhower the idea of containment would be reinforced or perhaps you might say expanded into what he called rollback. Eisenhower rejected the idea of fighting limited wars like the one it was involved in on the Korean Peninsula, and he did so for several reasons. First, he believed engaging in limited war surrendered the initiative to the enemy, allowing them to choose the times, places and methods under which military confrontation would take place. If the United States surrendered the initiative, it would suffer a depletion of not only military and economic strength, but it would also suffer a loss of morale. John Foster Dulles' domino theory would thus dictate policy in Southeast Asia. If one country fell to communism, neighboring countries would also fall, including Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, perhaps even India. So these two things combined, Eisenhower's rollback, along with John Foster Dulles arguing a domino theory, those two things are going to end up getting the U.S. involved in Vietnam. Again, though, it's still not 100% sure that we would get involved. So, why Vietnam? As late as January of 61, there was still a strong possibility that it would not be Vietnam, at least not the Vietnam that came to be. By this I mean, Eisenhower appeared to view Southeast Asia, Asia strategically significant, but saw Vietnam as a part of that, not the be-all and end-all. In fact, when Kennedy met with Eisenhower the day before the inauguration, the country of Laos was at the top of the agenda. Robert McNamara, Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, said that Ike predicted that to lose Laos would mean the loss of Southeast Asia. So while the United States and her policymakers were in fact focused on Southeast Asia, it was not zeroed in on Vietnam per se. Furthermore, Historian Jeffrey Shaw has recently argued that Vietnam itself, in 1960, was not the disaster it would become. The problem, at least in one respect, as Harvard historian Niall Ferguson has correctly noted, is that the United States cannot decide on what it wants to be or how it wants to act. FDR was caught between despising European-style imperialism and colonialism on the one hand, while on the other, viewing the Vietnamese people themselves of incapa- as incapable of self-government. This attitude would carry on into the Truman and Eisenhower administrations, as well as uh, the administration of John F. Kennedy. And so the policymakers and advisors of the United States government would seemingly be at war with themselves over how to proceed, as well as at war with the leader they were supposed to be helping, Godin Siem of South Vietnam. When one adds the pressure and the geopolitical effects of the Cold War to this equation, it's easy to see the United States would end up becoming increasingly involved in Vietnam. So where did it all go wrong? The Kennedy administration would come into office in January of 1961, full of optimism and promise. After the previous three decades under the leadership of elderly men, the youthful Kennedy and his young family seemed a breath of fresh air. However, the young leader would soon find out that winning the office of president is perhaps easier than being president. Besides the Bay of Pigs fiasco and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the administration had its hands full in Southeast Asia. Kennedy, within a period of 16 months, made two major mistakes, both of which would doom the United States' mission in South in Vietnam, and both Avril Harriman, Kennedy's ambassador-at-large, played a role. The first was the decision to sign an agreement in July of 1962, promising to, the respe- to respect the neutrality of Laos. The second mistake took place in November 1963 when a coup against Diem by a military council led by Army of the Republic of Vietnam General Zhuang Van Ming, along with the backing of the U.S. government in the person of Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge, removed Diem from office and ended up murdering him and his brother the day after the coup. This would lead to several years of political chaos and the need for massive U.S. troop buildups in an attempt to pacify the situation. Ho Chi Minh himself grasped how profound this decision was when he said, quote, I can scarcely believe the Americans would be so stupid, end quote. While the North Vietnamese Politburo was even more explicit, saying, quote, was one of the strongest individuals resisting the people and communism. Diem was one of the most competent lackeys of the United States, end quote. Having been warned by Eisenhower about the fact that Laos was the key to the region, as mentioned earlier, by 1963, Kennedy had given up on the Laos, on the Lao, and their ability to fight for themselves. As historian Seth Jacobs noted, Kennedy, his fellow policymakers, and the journalists who quote set the boundaries, end quote, within which discussions took place and policy was made, stereotyped the Laotians as lazy, childlike, submissive, and unfit to not only fight the battles of the free world. But to even be a part of it. This led Kennedy to chart a course in which Harriman would bargain for Laotian neutrality at Geneva while the president expanded America's role in Vietnam, a decision which would prove fateful. Because the North Vietnamese and their Viet Minh allies would disregard the neutrality pact, this essentially gave them a base to operate from while they stepped up the pressure on the government in South Vietnam and her partner, the United States. In fact, what would be called the Ho Chi Minh Trail was an essential part of the tactical strategy devised by the communists in their efforts against the South. The communists knew the United States did not want to put troops in Laos due to its geographical complexities. They also knew American policymakers would be unwilling to break the Geneva Accords. The North Vietnamese and their Viet Minh allies would have no such compunction. By the fall of 1964, the quantity and quality of weapons available to the guerrillas' in South Vietnam increased dramatically as the Viet Minh worked to expand the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which ran through Laos. By the end of the war, what had once been a simple set of trails would become a full-fledged, enormous all-weather highway system in which some 300,000 people worked day and night to keep the supplies moving south. Essentially, the Kennedy administration had given their communist enemies safe haven from which to operate, the significance of which cannot be overemphasized. The infiltrating forces of the Viet Cong and even the regular forces of the North Vietnamese Army would rely primarily on weapons and supplies infiltrated into the South via the trail. Military historian Mark Moyer notes, It was not surprising that a high-ranking communist leader observed in early 1963 Southern Laos was vital to all of South Vietnam and all of Indochina. The American effort to build a viable nation in South Vietnam one that was free of communist influence, was seriously weakened by this. Likewise, the second major mistake made by Kennedy was allowing elements within the U.S. government itself to continue to attack the leadership of ZM. Harriman, Roger Hilsman, the Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, George Ball, Undersecretary of State for Economic and Agricultural Affairs, and Michael Forrestal, a member of the National Security Council, relying mostly on reports from the press, argued for the removal of Diem and his brother. These men felt a successful regime in South Vietnam would be one which acted just like the American government. This, however, was not realistic. The United States was an industrialized nation with approximately 200 years of democratic tradition and was not attempting to put down a communist insurgency. The only insistence in American history which was comparable was perhaps this American Civil War, a time when the president gathered unprecedented powers onto himself, placed his political enemies in jail, suspended constitutional rights, and did whatever he needed to do in order to win the war. To expect Diem to do any differently was at best hypocritical, and at worst, it was suicidal. By 1963, there were other elements in the administration which were also in opposition to Diem such as the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, as well as Vice President Lyndon Johnson. The root of their dissatisfaction was the way the South Vietnamese government handled the Buddhist protests, the most famous of which was the self-immolation of Thich Quang Duc on June June 11, 1963. Today, revisionist historians, such as the aforementioned Mark Moyer and Jeffrey Shaw, have questioned the importance of these protests, Moyer himself notes the dissatisfaction with the handling of this was centered in the cities and due to the government's inability to silence its opposition. Shaw goes further, questioning the idea that Ziem was an enemy of Buddhism, and he shows how Ziem worked to bring Buddhism back from the verge of extinction in the South, even though Ziem himself was Catholic. Even before the crisis broke out, critics of Ziem were accusing him of creating an intolerant regime which favored Catholics over all others, a charge Shaw successfully argues against. And if you're interested in this, I would recommend that you read Shaw's book, The Lost Mandate of Heaven. Either way, whether or not one believes the charges against Ziem were valid, important elements of the Kennedy administration believed them, and by the summer of 1963, plans were being formulated to remove Ziem. Kennedy decided to replace Ambassador Nolting, who was pro prosium, with Henry Cabot Lodge, who was anti-Zium. Now, this would prove a fatal move, one that would place the American effort in South Vietnam on the road to failure. As Nolting himself told Undersecretary State Ball in a meeting on July 5th, a coup would be a disaster which could cause South Vietnam to be torn apart by feuding factions and force the United States to withdraw and leave the country to communists. He also noted that Diem would stop suppressing the radical Buddhist protesters if they stopped attempting to remove him from office. Lastly, a further piece of evidence shows how out of touch many of the American policymakers were with the realities of South Vietnamese culture. The Vietnamese social order was far different than that in the West. At the top of the order were the C, si, or scholars, men of learning, like Godin Xiam and his brother, Nu after this group came peasant farmers and under, the, under them were the workers below them was as was typical in many asian societies were the merchants and businessmen at the very bottom were the bin or the soldiers seen as performing a necessary but dirty job this explains why when the kennedy administration went forward with the coup and allowed a c to be replaced with a group of bin it was doomed to failure what's more by allowing the coup to take place, the American administration played right into the hands of their communist allies and proved that, in fact, the Americans were engaged not in an enterprise to help the Vietnamese, but to colonize them and make their land a part of the American empire. Now, as Ho Chi Minh argued, the Americans were in Indochina to replace the French. That was Ho Chi Minh's argument. And what we were doing was basically proving that argument. By removing Ziam, a member of the C, or the educated classes, and replacing him with a group of generals, we played right into the hands of the communists, and we showed that we were engaged in administrative colonialism in Southeast Asia. The next few years were going to be rough for the Americans and their South Vietnamese allies, and by March of 1968, the war was the undoing of President Johnson's administration, and it led to the election that November of Richard Nixon. However... Even if the Kennedy administration had not sided with the generals and removed Diem from office, success in Vietnam was not assured. First of all, the Americans um, being listened to at the highest levels, as I've noted on several instances, simply did not understand what was going on on the ground. Those who did were shut out of the conversation, as the decision-makers were unwilling to play the long game, something the communists and Vietnamese in North Vietnam were ready to do. Secondly, the United States made a major mistake when they allowed Laos and Cambodia to be declared neutral, knowing full well that the communists would never abide by the terms of the agreement. Harriman, of all people, should have been aware of this, having dealt with the Soviets at Yalta. Third, by removing Diem, a well-known nationalist Vietnamese leader and a member of the C-class, and replacing him with a military man, the United States unwittingly cast itself as a foreign empire engaged in administrative colonialism, at best, thus fulfilling the communist propaganda which had been claiming all along that the United States was simply taking over where the French left off. In the end, what Niall Ferguson said holds true to some extent. The United States has a problem with the terms empire and colonialism and often bounces back and forth between acknowledging it is an empire and acting in accordance with that idea, and then swinging back quickly to the other end of the spectrum with disastrous results. In the 1950s, both President Eisenhower and his chief advisor, Dulles, were willing to allow Diem and his brother to do what they had to do in order to bring peace and stability to the country. However, Kennedy, a decidedly less experienced leader than Eisenhower, appears to have learned leaned far too much on the advice of old hands such as Harriman and Galbraith, even though they were contradicted by the men on the ground in Vietnam. There was certainly enough evidence to go either way, and the arguments for removing Diem were powerful. However, by doing so, the United States was acting like a colonial power, whether or not it intended to do so. This meant that the United States would likely suffer the same fate as the French before them. Of course they did, but not before thousands of Americans, and over a million Vietnamese perished. Okay, so we spoke earlier about some of the historiography on the war and I wanted to wrap this episode up with a final few thoughts. When it comes to the writing on the war, the debate obviously continues. Um, the aforementioned Mark Moyer, who is was Harvard and Cambridge-educated, published Triumph Forsaken, a revisionist look at the early years of the war back in 2006. Now, the backlash from... Um, many historians was such that in 2010 a collection of essays was published in response to the work now that book contains arguments from orthodox historians who were critical of Moyer's arguments and conclusions as well as responses from Moyer himself to the critics the importance of this work is that it shows more than 33 decades after the war ended that it is still a controversial event in U.S. history, one for which a definitive narrative has yet to be established. Now, in the coming years, uh, I would hope that with continued access to communist archives from the north of Vietnam, as well as with fading emotion due to the remoteness of the war and the emergence of professional historians who did not live through the war or come of age during the heated arguments of the late Cold War years, that a post-revisionist take on the war will provide us with a synthesis of the best conclusions from both the orthodox and the revisionist school of thoughts. This type of a history with access to archival information from both the West and the East would take into account the transnational nature of the war and the pressure um, on the United States to get involved, as well as provide us with a time frame which does not truncate the war at 1968, which many of the books, if you look, uh, many of the works deal with the war up to 1968 and don't really go beyond that. In the end, the fascination this war holds on the American imagination will most likely not recede into the near future. Um, Its importance to historians will hopefully also not recede as it continues to hold lessons for scholars and laymen alike. Okay, so that's our episode on the Vietnam War, or at least the lead-up to the Vietnam War. Um, I hope you found it as interesting as I did when I um, wrote this. Also, um, if you would, today is December 8th, and if you're listening sometime close to December 8th, we're doing a poll. I'm trying to figure out what I should cover in Season 2, and I've got four topics so, that I'm thinking about. Um, I'm thinking about the American War for Independence or the cold war um, the third topic is the vietnam war and then the fourth one would be the war between the united states and mexico so if um if you can please go to the website www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com and take the poll it'll take you two seconds um i won't have your email address none of that so you don't need to worry about me um sending a bunch of junk mail to your inbox also um if you like the podcast please sign up for our email updates. I only email maybe once or twice a month. So again, I'm not going to um, bombard your email inbox with a bunch of junk. And you can do that at the website. Okay, well, thank you for listening. Have a good day.